Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. It's no misnomer that the truth throughout all of history has been at the center of war. Conflicts, whether they are big or small, many, oftentimes, and maybe all the time, come about over disagreements over the truth. And we see plenty of examples of this throughout history. See the Crusades of the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, all about who the Holy Land belonged to, the Muslims or the Christians of the day, whose land was it rightfully. And they had wars, they fought it out, and blood was shed. At the center of that, the land belonged to somebody. They were going to duel it out to see who won, but the truth still remained that it belonged to somebody, and it didn't belong to another party. Right now, the war in Ukraine. It's anybody's question what's going on over there. From where we sit over here, getting our information through media sources, it's up in the air. But the question remains, was this provoked? Is that land, does it belong to somebody else? Do those people, do they belong to somebody else? What is the war actually being fought over? And if you do look in the media, it's anybody's guess. They all say something different, but yet there remains a truth in there somewhere. In World War II, after World War I, the Germans had used the Jews as their scapegoat as a reason for why they lost World War I. And Adolf Hitler, being an officer in the military, used that to fuel his hatred of the Jews even more, and eventually... World War II comes about, and they seek to exterminate an entire group of people off the earth. Now, they base their premise on an unfounded claim that the Jews were the reason in which they lost the war. And they let that proliferate through their people to gain power and to grow up an army against the Jewish people. Now, was it true? Seems to not be. There's a truth at the center of everything. Winston Churchill had this to say, In wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. And the United States may be the best example of that. We seek to be the world's peacekeeper, and I'm not here to debate that. But oftentimes... There are things going on all over the world, and we may have little chess pieces that we're moving, and other countries do the same. And at the end of the day, there's a truth as to what's going on, but do we see that truth? Do the things that we do all the time, are they always founded in truth? So when it comes to the subject of truth, there's a multitude of things that probably come to your mind. Raleigh mentioned one of them during announcements, the ballot initiative that's coming up. It's meant to uh, be a way in which we can protect life in the state of Ohio. So I could sit up here and attack social issues that we are very commonly familiar with, abortion being one of them, maybe the biggest ticket item going on in the United States right now. We could sit here and just talk about the truth of life. We could sit here and talk about the truth of all those things, and we would be right in doing that. 
We could talk about the gender ideology movement of today and attack that and get to the truth of that. And we'd be just in doing that. We could talk about political corruption. It's everywhere. We know it. We could talk about that, and we would be right in doing that because there's truth in everything. And the culture has certainly gone down a path where there is no absolute truth. Everything is relative. It's all about how I feel. And whatever you're doing really offends me because I have a truth within me that serves myself. Now, all of those things that I just listed, the abortion, gender ideology, corruption, you could list on, go on and on and on about things. All of those things are evil. And we could talk about the truth that lies within all of those. I have plenty of things that I could say, but I could just sit here and yell about those things and it wouldn't be a benefit to me or you, so we're not going to do that. But despite all of those things going on in the world, I think there's really one question, and there's many questions, but we're going to talk about one question today that really has to come first. We oftentimes talk about a biblical worldview and how that informs a lot of other things. And there's, you know, I think it's good to push that. But there's one question that the soul of every human to ever exist, there's a question lies in the palms of that and informs everything else in life. And that question is found right there in Matthew 22. Verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Now, that's an astounding question coming from the guy who claims to be Christ himself, right? What do you think about the Christ? I'm him, but I'm going to find out what you think. So here in chapter 22, if you look behind, we're not going to read any of it, but if you look behind where we're at, there's a couple groups. There's some Pharisees, there's some Sadducees that are there asking questions, wanting to stump Jesus. They ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. They ask about the resurrection. They come in, ask what the greatest commandment of the law is, and he has a response. And you'll see if you look in there, they don't really have a clap back for those questions and his answers. So this brings us to our question this morning where Jesus goes on the offensive. So my question for you to ponder throughout the rest of this time, to really have in the back of your mind as we talk through all of this passage, is what do you think about the Christ? That's my question for you. And really, that goes beyond when you walk out the doors. What do you think about the Christ? And Lord willing, in our time together this morning, we'll be able to come to the truth as to who the Christ is, no matter what we think about him. So we're going to take a wide approach to this, and it's going to be a little bit different. If you notice, your handout is pretty blank, just has the passage on it. That was intentional. Take your own notes. See, I want, this is going to be a good reflection time. This is going to be an examination time for yourselves. Write yourself some notes. And I'll be honest, this, this topic was a little challenging for me. I started with truth, and I ended up at the Lordship of Christ, and here we are. 
and um, many of you are in love with expository preaching. We practice it here. Um, we just ended a passage. Uh, we just ended First Timothy, and so we're not starting a new one. So I'm going cherry picking Matthew 22, and uh, we're going to exposit it. But this is going to be a challenge. I hope it is. Um, pray that Christ will be exalted in the minds of all of us, which is the point of this message. So, first thing that we're going to tackle, what do we think about Christ? Or, differently stated, what does the world say about Christ? He was a good teacher. He was a moral man. He was a revolutionary. He was strong and powerful. He was a conqueror. He was close-minded. He was arrogant. He was racist. He segregated. He was a liar. He's dead. And he never existed. Bunch of claims there, right? Now, some of those are true, and you probably pointed some of those out if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus was a good teacher, right? We see that in Matthew 22. They don't have an answer for a lot of the things that he says. His responses to their question, they refuse to ask more questions. He was a moral man, more moral than any of us. He is strong and powerful. That's more so than we can ever imagine. But in the midst of everything, there's a truth as to who he is. And is, not was. Right? He is. We serve a living God. So there's a truth to who he is. So just like there's truth that you're all sitting here and staring at me, there's a truth that we must come in our minds of who Christ actually is. Now, a couple things I want to get out of the way. We're going to table a couple arguments, and I mentioned them in that list of what the world says about Christ. First, we're going to table the debate of whether Jesus actually existed. Now, to anyone who wants to go and investigate that claim on their own, people like to debate that. It's an unfounded claim. Historians, by and large, the evidence is so far there, there's more writing about Jesus, the person of Jesus, than there is about Julius Caesar, and nobody questions whether that guy lived. It's not, it's not really an honest argument to have, and so we're going to table that. People like to debate that, mainly out of hatred of needing to find a savior. So we're going to table that argument. Second one, we're not going to debate whether or not the resurrection actually happened. Now, that's a, it, it's an interesting conversation to have. I've been witness to a lot of those conversations. It's, it's an interesting to have, but we're not going to do it because the evidence also is quite overwhelming, and it's not really going to be worth our time this morning to debate whether or not the resurrection actually happened. All right, Go investigate that yourself, especially if you are not a true believer in Jesus Christ and you're investigating what it means to have a saving relationship with Christ, and you, it doesn't compute in your mind that a man may die and come back to life. Go investigate those claims. However, I hope that our conversation this morning is going to inform why that's the case. So, the lone thing 
that the world will say about Christ that is higher than any claim is that he's not Lord. Because that is a top-down destruction of who Jesus Christ actually is. The answer to the question, is Christ Lord, is a deal-breaker. It is. If you're a true Christian, it informs, every, it's the essence of your being. It, is, it makes up who you are. So to say that Christ is not Lord, it, it's soul destruction. It really, truly is. The, the way we answer and our answer to that question really informs and guides every second of every single day for every believer. And so, the answer to the question, is Christ Lord and what do we think about the Christ, is imperative. It is imperative. It's so critically important to the believer. But really, it's also critically important to the unbeliever as well. So, there's a term that I want to inform you of. Maybe many of you are familiar with this. It's called easy believism. Easy believism. Easy believism essentially states that all you need to do to become a Christian is believe in Jesus. Now, you're all looking at me like, duh. You know, that's literally how it works, isn't it? Right? And I would agree with you. You wouldn't technically be wrong. If you look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we talk about it here basically every Sunday. This, this verse is up on the screen most Sundays, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? So right there, yes, all you need is to place your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And he will save you. Right? So all you need is Jesus. You need to believe in him. However, at the same time, Someone were to ask you, or if you were to ask somebody, and all they need to tell all they tell you is you need to believe in Jesus. What Jesus are we talking about? Do you believe the same Jesus that I believe? Do you believe the same Jesus in the Bible? Do you have a created Jesus? Who are we talking about? Right? Everybody has their own Jesus of sorts. There's a lot of Jesuses out there. If your Jesus is your casual friend, where you've had a downer of a day, and you go into your closet, you sit there and you talk to your clothes, meditate a little bit, like, big guy upstairs, I need some help. Now, God is surely great and powerful and capable of helping us in time of need. And I am not saying that that is false. But if Jesus is only your casual friend, when you absolutely need him, and at all other times, you kind of leave him to the side. Are we talking about the same Jesus? Are we? If your version of Jesus in Mark 7, he referred to some people as dogs, and you think that there Jesus was racist to those people and that he needed to repent. And that the Syrophoenician woman called him out and said, no, that's not okay. 
Jesus had to repent of his sin. Do we worship the same Jesus? There's a pastor. He happens to be a homosexual man. I say pastor, air quotes. He's in San Diego. He's gaining lots of popularity. He's been on lots of podcasts. He appears on TV. He's a young guy, charismatic. People like him. That's what he says. Right? That Jesus had to repent. To a true Christian, Jesus Christ is their Lord, first and foremost. And if there's anything that the world is going to tear down, it is the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. It informs everything. Our view on the lordship of Christ, which if we're having a conversation on this, you could say the term, the lordship of Christ, that's how it's referred to us. The lordship of Christ, it's what informs every fiber of our being as long as we are an adopted child of God. And it should inform us every day of our being. So, let's dive into our text. We're going to pick up in... Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. That's in reference to Psalm 110, making a footstool out of his enemies. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? There's a lot there. A lot that we can't cover. However, if you notice, the answer that these religious leaders, these Pharisees gave, it's incredibly telling. Right, The son of David. That was their answer. He's the son of David. And really, for the Jews, this is the most obvious answer, right? If you look in Mark 12, the same account is in Mark 12. And in verse 35, it's quoted as Jesus saying, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So it's not that they were technically wrong, because the scribes in the Old Testament Refer to him as the son of David. It's what they know, right? This is, this is, it's in Scripture, the son of David, right? So this was to be expected. This isn't out of the ordinary. Really, this answer, the son of David, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes his covenant with David. And in verse 12, the prophet Nathan, nice, um, speaking for the Lord, says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So yeah, in the line of David, the Messiah will come. So their thinking is correct, right? Their thinking is correct. Their answer isn't necessarily fully wrong. 
then if you go into Psalm 89, falling in line with the covenant that was there that God made with David in 2 Samuel, the Lord says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Skipping down to 20 through 24, it says, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Now here, it is a little wordy right there. The term son of David is not to be unexpected. And even in Psalm 89 there, it says David. It's talking about the Lord. It's talking about the Lord to come. So we see, they said the son of David... Here in Psalm 89, it just refers to him as David. Out of seed, the whole, the whole, everything will come. He's talking about Jesus. So, using this, the answer that the Pharisees gave, the son of David. We're going to do an exercise together, all right? What I want to do is out of the answer that the Pharisees gave, being the son of David, I want to extrapolate that and apply this to us in our own minds. All right? What is our definition of who Christ is? Their definition of who Christ is, they gave the Son of God. What is yours? Is he your friend? Is he your protector? Is he your strength? Is he your sustenance? See, all of those things are great things. They're all good. And if you're found in Christ, Jesus the Lord certainly is your friend. He certainly is your strength. He's your source of wisdom. He's your source of confidence. Source of hope. He's everything. So all of those are good. But, unfortunately, much like the answer that the Pharisees gave, it may be true. But does it fall short? Does it suffice? And that brings us to our second question. What does Christ say about himself? What does Christ say about himself? Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 22. He said to them, Jesus how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? There's a lot in there as well. We just can't cover it all. There's two important things that I want to pull out of this for us. Okay, Number one, Jesus shows that he's more than just a man. Right? Now, this was a big sticking point with the Jews. Right? They got hung up on this time and time again. All right? He came from the loins of David. Right? right there. There's, there's just man. Right? He was born a man. Okay? Now, if they had any questions as to whether he actually truly came from the loins of David, 
we see, if you look back at Matthew chapter 1, if you're in your Bible, the Matthew chapter 1 just lists the genealogy all the way from Abraham to Christ, right? The Jews are well known, were at the time, especially for being great record keepers. They had the genealogies of everybody. And at this time, the temple had yet to be destroyed. This, that came, you know, 40-some years later. So they had that. If they really wanted to know whether he was from the line of David, they could go find it. And it's possible that they did. It is, right? But he, sh- he shows he's more than just a man. So they knew what they were waiting on. And here was a man from the line of David claiming to be Christ, the Messiah. However, when they realized maybe he was the son of David, but he's not some political warlord that was going to go conquer Rome and he wasn't going to be fierce and just be a knight in shining armor. And he was more than just a man, but he wasn't what they wanted. Guess what they did? All of those people that were clamoring for him were yelling for them to crucify him. They killed him. The one they wanted, that they'd been longing for. And they were faithful in that as well. You see, they didn't switch up what they thought he would be. They, they were sticking to it. They just didn't see it in this man, Jesus. So first, he shows he's more than just a man. But secondly, Jesus identifies himself as Lord. He identifies himself as Lord. And the Pharisees, calling the Christ the son of David, right, wasn't technically wrong. But it did not rise to the level that was justified, right? In the minds of the Pharisees there, the son of David, he didn't deserve the title. But in Jesus' mind, he deserved much, much more than just being the son of David. So for you, in our exercise together, in light of the son of David, pin the son of David, that is what their description of, his, of him was, our, in our exercise, is calling Jesus a protector wrong? No. Is calling him our strength Incorrect, no. Is he our friend, Especially, particularly if you're found in Christ? No. But Christ's ultimate role, his ultimate role, the one that allows him to redeem sinners, and the one that allows him to live sinless, to rise from the dead after dying on a cross, the one that allows him to reconcile us to the Father and be our mediator in between us and the Father. The one that allows them to sit at the right hand of God. The role that allows that is that of Lord, not our friend. Does it rise to the level worthy? So for the, un- for the believers in here, right? What do you think about your profession of Christ? You may say, you know, well, if someone has made a profession of Christ, then you can't be talking to the unbelievers in the room. I tend to disagree. Everyone technically has a profession. 
whether they choose to accept him or not, or even put any thought into who Christ is, that is their profession. But unfortunately, for those who do claim Christ, my fear is that their claim of him, who they say he is, is, well, he's the son of David. He's just the son of David. My fear is many Christians have deluded themselves into thinking that their profession of who Christ is fits in their box. And inside that box is the son of David. And he's nothing more than that. Because, I mean, even if you listen to a lot of those statements, he's my friend, he's my protector, he's my strength. They may be true, but they are all, some of those are also self-serving, right? What informs all of those things to be capable for Christ to give is his lordship. His lordship invokes our submission. And the submission to Christ's lordship is not one that is optional. It's not optional. You cannot claim Christ and him not be your Lord. Now, the cool part about this, we all have an individual responsibility. I think this is cool. You may not. We all have an individual responsibility, right? If we are going to submit to the Lordship of Christ, right? But also, we here, you're all sitting here, right? We also have a corporate responsibility to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And we are doing that right now, right? Really good step. Maybe step one, sitting under the teaching of God's word. That is submission to the Lordship of Christ, right? There's somebody who has come to prepare, to give the word of God. And we corporately have the honor And I would say the obligation to come and sit underneath the teaching of his word, which is submission to the lordship of Christ. And assuming you haven't tuned me out already, you're a part of that, right? I think that's cool. Because really all of our thoughts, our desires, our actions, they're all informed by our submission to the lordship of Christ. And if we are to conform to the lordship of Christ and to his will, then here corporately, his will for us is to sit underneath the teaching of his word. Because that brings him praise, honor, and glory. And in doing so, we are submitting to the lordship of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, that's why we gather. It is. And I'm not saying this to point out any of you who may be unbelievers here. right? But the gathering, the corporate gathering of the church is for believers. Right? If you're here and you're a true believer, right? You should invoke to somebody who may not be, an un- be a believer, who walks in the door, they are submitting to the Lordship of Christ. They are different. I see that. I see Christ in them. There's something different. It should provoke a feeling of outsidedness within them, which is ultimately a conviction of their lack of submission. We should be welcoming and loving to those who are unbelievers that come into our doors. Absolutely. But the church is for the believers. That's what it's for. The ecclesia. The gathered people. So, to continue in this, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 24. 
Joshua chapter 24. Thus far, we've discussed what we or the world think of Christ. We've discussed what Christ says about himself. And in a little bit, how we feel about our own standing with our profession of who he is or isn't. Now we have two dialogues there, competing claims, because the Lord or the, the Lord says one thing and the word and the world says another, right? Ultimately, there's a truth there. Is Christ Lord, right? Now Joshua 24 is an illustration of this exercise that we're going through. Okay? So I could have just gone through this passage and it would have been fine, but we're gonna go through it anyways. So We're in Joshua chapter 24. I'm going to pick you up to speed on the first 23 chapters of the book really quick. All right. Moses dies early on in Joshua. Moses was supposed to be the one to take them into the promised land. He uh, had a bout of anger and struck the rock in anger and distrust in the Lord. And the Lord told him he will never enter the promised land. And so he dies early on, never makes it. Right. Now, Joshua is the one who's going to carry the torch of the Israelites into the promised land. Okay. He eventually takes them there under the Lord's provision. They fight many battles with Canaanites. They squash their enemies often, many times, and the Lord has his hand very intensely into those battles. Right? You can go read them. Um, and then afterwards, Joshua was responsible for allotting the land of the 12 tribes. Right? This is where all of that kind of starts. Which if you read in chapters 13 through 22, it's an interesting read. Get a map out because it's really hard to picture in your mind where all these people are going if you're just reading it. It's not really going to make sense if we lived over there. Maybe it would, but I'd get a map out as you read it. So it's kind of interesting, though, that all the splitting up of the tribes is a fulfillment of God's promise. So the Jews were, I mean, that, that was their thing. You'd promise this to Abraham, and he was keeping his promise, right? It's a huge deal. So here in chapters 23 and 24, Joshua is bringing messages from God to these people. And what does he remind them of? He reminds them of how he has delivered, the Lord has delivered them from their enslavement. How he has brought them into the promised land. How he has had his hand tensely in those battles to defeat their adversaries. But also that he kept his promise promise that they had been waiting a long time for, right? So, here in 24, he's reminded them of all of that, and the question that he proposes to them is, will you stay faithful or not? After all that the Lord has done for you, what is your response? So, we'll read Joshua 24. We'll start in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. This is Joshua speaking through God. Now, therefore, fear the God. Excuse me, I said that wrong. This is God speaking through Joshua. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. 
For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who, who did those great things in our sight and persevered us and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we, will, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Now that's a really cool passage, right? It's a testament to the Lord. He's been faithful to these people, right? Everything that he's done, who he is, the promises he's kept, he has been found to be worthy of their honor and their praise and their service. But did you see there in the middle, even after they confessed that they will serve the Lord, Joshua still challenged them in their confession. (laughs) They said, we will serve the Lord, right? I mean, really what they did is they just kind of repeated everything that Joshua said. Yeah, the Lord did all this for us. And then they just tagged on at the end, we will serve the Lord because of all those things that you just said, Joshua. Right, you know? But then, verses 19 and 20, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. It's like, no, you can't. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) So they had just made a, a confession of who he was and that they would serve him. And then in 21, no, but we will serve the Lord. I come right back. No, we will serve the Lord, right? And Joshua made sure that they were witnesses and that their confession was true, right? Put away all the other gods and serve the Lord. And I love this. He urges them to incline their heart to the Lord. It's a wonderful line. If you skip down to verse 31 there in Joshua 24, Joshua had already passed at this point, and it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So they remained faithful in the end, right? It's pretty incredible. And what a testament to the Lord, because they did so for who he is. It wasn't because they were great and mighty, because of who God is. Now, last week, Luke wrapped up our study in 1 Timothy. And there in chapter 6, he hit on a couple things there at the end that really tie into our message today. We saw Paul, he's talking specifically about money and the love of that. And then if you want to extrapolate that into other things as Luke did, talking about 
uh, fame and sex and all sorts of things of the worldly pleasures that we get wrapped up in that we will elevate to the point in which we serve them. We worship those things, right? We create idols and gods out of them. So in light of the Joshua passage that we just read, where Joshua says, put away those foreign gods, what foreign gods must you put away? Is it the love of money? Is it the love of the fame? Do you want attention? Is it your job? Is it sex? Is it your spouse, your boyfriend, or your girlfriend? Have you elevated those things in your mind to the level at which your heart is no longer inclined to the Lord and that it is resting in those things? And it was kind of fitting that he spoke on that because just two days ago, I closed on my first house. And he just got done talking about all our worldly possessions and things of that nature. And here I am buying a house and uh, investing a lot of my assets into that house, right? Um, And I know it's a pretty big deal. However, I have to, you know, I just thought of it because it was so close to what was going on in my life. It's like, that's God's house, Much like it is God's money, much like it is God's glory that is like proclaimed when you get a a promotion at work or something like that, if we puff ourselves up, we make ourselves our own God, and all of a sudden, God no longer gets the glory for the work that he has done in his people, right? Again, we're stewards, stewards of all of our possessions and all those things. Yes, I believe in Genesis 1, this is an interesting study. If you want to go study the dominion mandate, I think it's very interesting. If you go look, read through Genesis 1 through 3, I believe that Christ has given us dominion authority to of this earth. We are to take hold of it, and I believe that we are supposed to, in all things that we do, do it excellently, right? We talked, uh, Raleigh had mentioned the, the abortion, uh, the ballot initiative, there's a lot of Christians that have trouble with politics, and I, and I understand that. And some believe that we should not participate and that we shouldn't vote. Well, if God has given dominion of people to rule over the earth and to make it their own, and he has ordained government, are we not supposed to participate in something that he has ordained? He ordained marriage, and we participate that in all the that to- all the time. He has ordained something there for us to take hold of. And in that, we uphold righteousness. We uphold godliness and all of those things. So we can do that in all of our own worldly possessions that the Lord has granted us. Because if you look in 1 Timothy 6, 9, which Luke had referenced a bunch of times last week, all of those other things, if we are the Lord of it, brings about evil and destruction, right? And that's not just a physical destruction. That is a pure destruction of the soul. It eats us. It consumes us. Have you elevated any of these worldly things so much that now Jesus to you is just the son of David? Are these things becoming your gods and your lords? The son of David does not suffice. 
Finally, we see at the end of Matthew 22 in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So he silences critics, right? Guess what happened a couple days later? They took him through the city. They hung him on a cross. They crucified him. He didn't fit their description of the son of David. Right? So to end where we started, right? I know we, this was all about the lordship of Christ, yet it also is all about truth. We are in a truth war. Right? The answer, your answer to the question, what do you think about the Christ, will inform every other thing you believe in life. It informs everything. If you don't recognize Christ as Lord, then you have zero reason to value human life because you don't answer to anything. You answer to yourself. You've made yourself your own Lord. If you don't recognize Christ as Lord, you have zero reason to reject the gender ideology movement of today because you have abandoned the creative order that our Lord put in place. That's why it's good to be involved in these things because we are, we are pillars and buttresses of the truth, right? We are to uphold righteousness and godliness. And if the truth is in God's word and we let the world pass by, is Christ the Lord over those things? you reject Christ as Lord, you don't have a purpose. If you were here last week, I think it was last week, our new brother in Christ, Tristan, the guy in high school, he got baptized. If you remember in his testimony video, he said, I found a purpose in life because he recognizes Christ as his Lord. He submitted to that. All the other gods that we create are fleeting. And when we pass, those will too. The ultimate question is, where do you pass on to? There's two options. There's a truth there. So for those of you who are here who would not claim to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no time like today. You still may question, though, why did Jesus come in the first place? Why did he have to come as a man? Why did he have to die? In order to be called Lord. Well, God created all of creation. It was without blemish. Sin entered the world in the garden through Adam. This put a permanent barrier, that veil, between God and man. So now all are born into sin. Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We're in a predicament. We cannot redeem ourselves. So in order to reconcile sinners back to himself, God sent his only son, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, die on the cross, rise three days later in order that whoever would trust in him as Lord and Savior can join in eternal communion with him in heaven. 
a real place called heaven. Now that is the true saving gospel as is laid out in the whole council of scripture. Notice, nowhere in there is it make Jesus your friend. You need him today. There's a clip, and it's really sad. It's really sad. I just saw this a couple weeks ago. At Bethel Church. It's a big church. They put out tons of music. They had a baptism Sunday. And this woman comes up, and they had them all lined up that they were going to baptize, and they got her on the mic, and they said, why do you want to be baptized today? And her answer was, I feel like the God, I feel like the Lord has called me to be a warrior for his animal kingdom. And they all clapped and they all celebrated. They all thought that was wonderful. She does not serve the same Jesus. She does not have him as Lord. One sec. I'm ditching it. But the gospel comes to the true kingdom. It reconciles us to the true father. It is submission to the lordship of Christ that saves. And that encompasses all of the attributes of Jesus that he is to the true believer. He is a true believer's friend. He is a true believer's protector and strength and wisdom and love. He's all of that himself. Now, as we know, we read it earlier in Ephesians 2, we aren't saved by our works, right? It's not a system where we earn God's favor. Romans 2, Paul talks about this, that the Lord shows no partiality, right? So the blessings here on earth are not necessarily indicative of our standing before God. If you think that the Lord has tons of favor on you because you have amassed large amounts of money, the Lord does not promise that. Luke got into that very deeply last week, so I won't. But all of the blessings of life, good health and wealth and all of those things, yes, the Lord provides those things. There is a common grace there, but that is not promised. All of those things are fleeting, and they will have an eternal destruction as well. Because you're either going to spend eternity with God where those things no longer exist or you're going to spend eternity in a real place called hell thinking of all the things that you missed forever when you had the opportunity to make Jesus your Lord. So, for those of you who are here that claim to be one of Christ, examine the claims that you make about him. Rethink through that question on your own. Just continue to do it as you live life. What do you think about Christ? Just every day, in your actions, what do I think about Christ? Am I, am, I, am I exalting Christ in my speech? Am I exalting Christ in this action, at my job, to my kids, to my spouse? Is it evident that Christ is my Lord? Is Christ magnified above the level to which you benefit from him? Is he more than just a friend? Do you treat him like your friend? In Christ, there is peace, joy, love, and comfort. There is confidence in him. And all of those things are attainable through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But is Christ magnified in your mind and in the way that you live in such a way that you have willingly become a slave to the lordship of him? So are you a slave for Christ? Do you cognitively recognize him as your Lord and recognize, live accordingly of that truth? I want to close by reading the doxology given at the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. There is a truth that you have to reckon with. Is Christ your Lord? Let's pray. Father in heaven, our Lord, we praise you for who you are. You are the great creator. You are the great redeemer. You are our hope. You are our trust. You are our love. Father, where we fail to recognize you as Lord, may you bring that to light in our lives. May we, as believers, invoke that submission. May we bring about that submission. May we be willing to be a slave of Christ. Father, for those who are here who don't have a saving relationship with Christ, may it be evidence of their need for you as Lord in their life. I pray that our time this morning was edifying, that it brought about a perspective on your lordship. But Father, I also pray that this was exalting to you, that it was honoring to you. That in our minds, you aren't simply the son of David. You are our Lord. You are everything. May we live as such. Father, be the great protector and strength that you are. Have a hand over our families. As Eli and Megan get married today, may you be watchful over their marriage. May you be glorified in their marriage. Father, in all of us, may we exude that confidence that you are Lord of our lives every single day. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.